This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast from San Francisco in California. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today I've come to the Cognition and Aging Lab at San Francisco State University. Now, given that memory problems are often the first sign of aging, is there anything we can do to slow down the clock as we battle those senior moments? And why do some older people sometimes appear to be more optimistic or positive than younger generations. Well, I've come to meet Dr. Sarah Barber. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology here. Sarah's research focuses on memory in younger and older adults. She's also been studying how negative stereotypes impact older people. Sarah, it's good to see you. Yeah, great to be here. So tell me, the Cognition and Aging Lab, which is here in this building, what do you do? Yeah, so um, maybe I'll tell you a little story first about actually why I am interested in what I'm interested in. That was going to be my next question. Good. (laughs) I'm ahead of you. Um, So my graduate training and um, research had really focused on memory in younger adults. So as a student, I actually received no training at all in aging issues, and I'd never worked with an older adult. And then for my postdoc, after I received my PhD, I went to um, the University of Southern California to work with Mara Mather, and I was in the gerontology school. And since I was in the gerontology school. And, and it's um, a place I'm very familiar yeah. with. <laughs> and my money was being, for my um, for my salary, was coming from grants that were meant to support aging research. Um, I started doing some studies with older adults as well. Um, and the very first study that I did, I advertised it as a study on aging um, and memory and memory in older and younger people. And what I was really shocked by was how people responded to that advertisement and to the idea of having their memory tested. So sometimes I'd have somebody on the phone and they'd be very interested in coming in for the lab and doing the study until they heard that there was going to be a memory assessment. And as soon as they heard there was a memory assessment, sometimes people would actually change their mind and say, actually, no, I'm not interested in the study anymore. So people are interested in aging, but they're perhaps concerned (laughs) about what studies like this will tell them about themselves. I think so, yeah. And actually, maybe to drive that point home, there was one woman who'd come into the lab and she'd done the study. And at the very end of the study, she told me that she was so glad she came in that she'd almost called and canceled that morning because she was just so anxious about having her memory assessed. And what was so surprising to me about that is that she'd done remarkably well. She had done better than most of the undergrads had done. And these are top performing undergrads at an elite university at USC. And she had done better than they had done. And yet she was still so anxious about her memory being tested. And what that really led me to wonder was how people would be doing if they didn't have all of these concerns about what it meant to be getting older and what it meant to be an older adult taking memory tests and what everyday memory lapses really meant. Are these senior moments 
maybe just an everyday occurrence, or are they indicative of something worse? So when people express concern that they've initially thought this was a good idea and then have second thoughts, is it because clearly they have experienced themselves these memory lapses and they're perhaps a little embarrassed about it or nervous about what it means at their stage in life? I think there are some people like that. And then I think there's also a tendency as people get older to start over-attributing everything to their age. So I have people come into my lab sometimes, and when we're talking at the end of the study, they'll say that they're that they're very anxious about what it means to forget, that they misplaced their keys or they can't remember where they parked their car. And I think to myself, you don't know how many times per week I lose my keys. I lose my keys constantly. And yet I, in my late 30s, don't think to myself, oh, I bet this is because of my age. I just think, oh, I was busy. I was... I have too many things I'm doing. I, I wasn't paying attention. Because there's a difference between carelessness and a, a loss of memory. Yes. And I think at some point along the way, there there definitely is some decline that we do see normatively with most people as we get older. We we do become a little bit more forgetful. But I think that that, that normal amount of extra forgetting. I think we over-attribute the forgetting that we've always done as well to also being something that's being caused by our age. And for some people, though maybe not everybody, but for some people that really leads them to catastrophize any forgetting they do that. Anytime they forget anything, it makes them think, oh, it's because I'm getting older. It's a senior moment. Is this the first step towards something much worse. And as you get older, those things that you forget, you you do tend to focus on them and and dwell on them. Very often, it's names. It's it's a name of someone you've just met or just been introduced to, or it's a place name, it's somewhere you've been to, and you should be able to remember where you've been, but you just can't grasp that name. What is it about names? Yeah, so actually, um, one of the things that a lot of research has shown is that one of the memory problems that becomes the, the biggest as we get older is some type of binding between things. So names with faces or names with things or any type of pairing that you're doing like that. That's actually one of the types of memory that becomes the hardest as we get older. And it's one of the ones that we see the earliest declines on. What I think is important to remember, though, is that not all forms of memory are the same and not all of them change in the same way as we get older. So, yes, it might be harder to remember a face name pairing, but there's actually other forms of memory that stay very stable or even increase as we get older. So one example of that is that our general knowledge, sort of our memory for facts and our knowledge about the world is something that either stays the same or in some studies, actually, we see improvements with older people outperforming the younger adults um, on things like vocabulary assessments, for example. So you've set out very nicely what the issues are and some of the things that that concern people. What do you do here? Explain to me the basis of your work and what you're trying to do in terms of moving forward the knowledge of these issues. A lot of what we do is try to document how some of this anxiety might actually affect people's memory. When people come into our lab, what we do is we have them take memory tasks and we either frame the memory task as being something that is related to age and being an assessment of memory and age. Or we tell them actually that the test is age fair, that it's something everybody does well on no matter how old they are. So what we're really trying to do is either amp up people's concerns or really alleviate any concerns that they might have about the assessment. So, for example, if someone came in, we're taking a test, I might say, oh, the reason we brought you in today is because you're an older adult. In our lab, we're really interested in how memory is affected by aging. People with good memories tend to do well on this test and people with bad memories tend to do poorly. Now we're going to do a test. How old are you? 
um, what we find is that when we give that type of instruction prior to the test, people don't do as well as if they don't think that their memory is being assessed because of their age. And that's really just to document what we think is happening in the real world when people think my memory is being assessed because of my age, um, maybe this is the reason my doctor is giving me assessment or checking my things. When people have those concerns, what we're showing in our lab is that they then do worse on the tests than they would have done otherwise. Clearly, people go through their lives and, and they can assess where they are now compared with where they were 10 years mm-hmm. ago, 20 years ago, and perhaps realize that they're having more of these moments. Do they, the fact that they then dwell on them, does that make, in a sense, the issue worse for them? Yeah, that is sort of what our research shows, that when people um, have concerns, either that someone else is evaluating them or just even that the the concern is arising from their own selves, that I'm concerned about what my performance will tell me about my own abilities. When we have those types of concerns, what we call that in our lab and in many other labs is stereotype threat, that there's this stereotype that as we get older, we become senile. And when we're feeling threatened that maybe we're starting to confirm that stereotype to be true about ourselves, that concern can lead us to underperform compared to what we're capable of. Now, of course, a a loss of memory or an inability to grasp those names, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're sickening (laughs) for something. It it isn't necessarily the beginning of something more sinister. So is it possible to say what the norm is? Is it the norm that, yes, we are going to, as we get older, be have those lapses in memory, but there's nothing significant in it that we should be concerned about? Yeah, this? absolutely. Um, we tend to tell people that forgetting where you put your keys is normal, forgetting what the keys are for, not normal. So as long as you're still within the realm of sort of everyday type of things, the type of things that maybe you would have done when you were 20 or 30, and you're just finding that they're happening more frequently most likely within the realm of normal. Um, I'm not necessarily interested in in my own research in reversing the normal age-related declines that are happening. What I'm interested in is how do we get people to be performing as optimally as they can be given the normal age changes that have happened. So what have you learned in that area? And what really interests me is the impact of socialization and being with other people, whether it's other people of the same age Mm -hmm. or people who are younger. Does that help us with our memory? Yeah. So there's been um, a couple of studies, not from my lab, but from other labs looking at um, the role of intergenerational interactions. And what they find is that when people have had many good, positive intergenerational interactions, that they're not as prone to have these types of concerns. And I think it's because when you are interacting with 20-year-olds again, you remember how much 20-year-olds forget (laughs) and how bad their memories actually are. Um, It's no longer this idealized version um, in your mind. That's a very interesting point because I think maybe the carelessness of remembering important things applies more to young people. And I don't know whether that's a lack of responsibility issue, that as you get older, you actually do think about (laughs) things and you have the benefit of wisdom, knowing that there are certain things that you really ought to focus on. Yeah, there's sort of two um, findings I'm thinking of that both point to the things you're saying. So one is that there's this very interesting paradox that we see on prospective memory, which is memory to do things in the future. In lab settings, if we bring in younger and older people and we have them do prospective memory tasks, younger people do better than older people. 
in real-world settings, if we're asking people to do prospective memory tasks, remembering to do things, older people do better than younger people. And I think some of it is that the younger adults just don't care. If we ask them to call us on a particular date or remember to come in for their appointments, some of it is that they're just not as concerned about doing it, whereas older adults do tend to be more conscientious about actually following up on those things. There's also lovely work from Alan Castell, who's at UCLA, where he's looked at people's ability um, as a function of age to remember important and not important information. And what he finds is that if information is important, there actually are no age differences between what younger and older people do. Um, When it is less important information, then there's big age differences with younger adults outperforming older adults. So in many respects, as as you get older, there's much to be positive about. You might not realize it at the time, but the way that you're living your life and, and using your memory can actually be beneficial. Yeah. And there's a lot of work coming out now showing that how how we think about aging really matters. So there's been longitudinal work from Becca Levy and others um, looking at how people's attitudes about aging in midlife predict their outcomes as they get older. And what she finds with her colleagues is that people who have good attitudes about aging, fewer negative stereotypes about what it means to becoming an old person, um, as they get older, they have better outcomes on basically any measure that you can think of. They are healthier, they live longer, they have better memories, Um, They recover better from things like heart attacks. So our attitudes about what it means to get older, when we have these negative attitudes, it can become self-fulfilling in many ways that we actually end up inadvertently becoming the stereotypes we're we're worried about. And how can you explain that clinically? (laughs) Yeah, I think this is one of the places that we're still working. Um, It's most likely a very complicated and cyclical thing. So if I have bad attitudes about what it means to be old, let's say I think old people are sick. And then as I'm getting older, I find that I'm getting frailer and sicker. And I think that's just a normal part of aging. I don't go see my doctor. I don't do the things to take care of myself. I get sicker and sicker. And yet I continue just to think this is a normal part of aging. If on the other hand, I think that not everyone is destined to get sick and frail just because they're getting older. And I find that I myself am getting a little sicker and frailer. I might start seeing my doctor. I might start exercising. I might start taking care of myself better. And as a result, I might have better outcomes because I'm intervening to stop the thing that that is happening. And something that you certainly I often hear is about an elderly person who has actually a lot of physical problems as they're aging. But you hear about that person that they are, quote, always cheerful. And and they somehow just keep on going and deal with the physical frailties that they have. Yeah, there's also interesting um, age changes that we see in emotional outcomes and emotional well-being, both in in everyday emotions, but also in how that affects attention and memory outcomes. So this is more work that comes from Laura Karstensen's lab at Stanford, but they find that people, as they get older, tend to have more positive emotions on a day-to-day basis than their younger counterparts do. And then in lab settings, when we look at things like attention and memory, we also find that older adults have a relative preference towards positive things and away from negative things. So our memory actually becomes a little rosier and our attentional preferences become better and more positive positive as we get older. Which must be a good thing. I would think so, yeah. I mean, definitely the emotional well-being. When I teach this to my undergrads, they're always a little surprised by it and a little skeptical. I can actually always see it on their faces that that older people might be happier than them seems 
counterintuitive to them at 20. (laughs) But what I asked them to think back on is how emotionally volatile they felt when they were 13 compared to how they feel now when they're 20. And all of them relate to that. 13 is (laughs) awful. And even at 20, you can look back at 13 and think, no way am I going back to where I was then. And well, when you get to <laughs> 50 or even yeah. 60, I'm not quite there yet, but you, you think back what it was like to be 40 or 30 or 20 or 15. And there are issues associated with every decade. Yeah. And I think it is the case that, I mean, whether you want to call it wisdom or just the benefit of experiencing life, things do, in many respects, get easier. Yes. And that is what we see when we ask people just about their everyday emotions. There's fewer negative emotions on a daily basis the older we get. I wonder if everyone realizes that. And if they did realize it, that they could just relax a bit about life. And and perhaps some older people will obviously fret about certain aspects of their life. I mean, is there an education thing here now that we understand some of these issues? How do you use the knowledge that you glean from your studies to actually help older people deal with the aging process? Yeah, I think keeping balanced views on things is really important. Um, And actually, the So maybe not the having better emotions on a daily basis, but there's always a double edged sword to many of these things, right? As we as we age, things change, but that's there's both good and bad to that. So, for example, with the fact that we see older adults showing positivity, on the one hand, that seems great. Like they're not looking at negative things as much. They're not paying attention to them or remembering them as much as this when they were younger. But on the other hand, they're not um, sometimes Sometimes that can be bad. So, for example, if you're doing decision making and there's positive and negative features about options and you're really only weighing the positive ones, you might be overlooking really valuable information in the negative ones as well. So it's a good thing as we get older. But on the other hand, we do have to be careful to make sure that we don't just completely forget the negative. So in other words, older people, if they are being perhaps overly positive, they could be blinded to some of the negative aspects of of things that are happening around them. I, I wonder if this is why some older people maybe get lulled into a false sense of security in, in certain situations, that they they can't see all sides? Maybe. I don't know if it's been studied in contexts like that. Um, the context I was thinking about was a study from Corinna um, Lockenhoff and some of her colleagues where they had healthcare options. And sometimes it's it's very complicated to pick healthcare plans, for example. And what they looked at was what types of features people looked at when they were trying to decide which one to pick. And what she found is that as people got older, they tended to look and weigh more heavily the positive features about the different plans. And they didn't tend to look at and weigh as heavily the negative features. But sometimes those negative features are really important. Some of the theory behind why people get more positive as they get older, um, again, it's from Laura Carstensen's lab at Stanford. But what they argue is that as we get older, we start thinking about time very differently. And that when we're young, we see time is very expansive. There's limitless possibilities in front of us. And Because of that, what our primary driving goal is, is to try new things, seek new things out, explore the world, gather information so we can figure out what the best course is for us going forward. As we get older, though, we start thinking about time differently. We start seeing it as more limited and with fewer fewer opportunities. And when we see time as more limited in that way, it, it changes our goals. And we're no longer as interested in seeking out and trying every new thing. What we're more interested in is making sure that we maximize the experiences that we have, that we want to experience positive things. We want to be with people who we know are going to bring us satisfaction. And we find that 
we find support for this. So there's support that when something catastrophic happens that reminds people of all ages that life is fragile and short, we find that people's goals and motivations change and they start looking more like what older people's natural goals look like. So, for example, after 9-11 or with the SARS epidemic, younger people looked more like what older people normally look like in terms of who they wanted to spend their time with. Everyone wanted to be with close others. Um, They didn't want to meet new people. We've done work in my lab looking at how even just thinking about time as more expansive or more limited changes the way that people approach memory tasks. So when we have people do a writing task where they imagine what their life would be like if you knew you only had six more months left to live, what would that change in terms of your goals, your social preferences, what you're doing with your time? Spending just five minutes writing about that, reflecting about that, and then looking at, um, we showed them a slideshow right afterwards of positive and negative pictures. We found that people then started looking at the positive pictures more, paying more attention to the positive things and remembering the positive things more. So it seems that just the way that we think about time influences our goals, and that influences then what we pay attention to and what we remember. It's almost counterintuitive, though, isn't it, that older people would be more positive in that sense, knowing that there was there was less time. You You would think naturally that they might be negative and and rather depressed about the situation. Yeah, and uh, there definitely definitely are cases of late-onset depression that happens for older adults, but that is not the norm, and I think that's a more of a stereotype about aging, that older adults are sad and depressed. Really, if we think about everyday emotional experiences, it's more likely to be the younger adults that are having some negative negative feelings. So what do you think as a a society, whatever age you are, we can glean from this, especially the the 9-11 example Mm -hmm. and and people having a different attitude about their future and their lives and people close to them that seems to correlate with the attitudes of of older people. What, What should we learn from this and take away? What I think about when I think about this as a whole, maybe, is that that there definitely are aspects to things like memory decline that are biologically, physiologically driven. But then when we look at how people do on memory tasks, um, and I'm always going to come back to memory because I'm a memory researcher, Mm. that there's oftentimes the case that younger and older adults look very different for many other reasons. It might not just be because of the physiological changes. It might also be because older adults are feeling anxious about the task or because their goals about what they're doing are different. And it's hard to sometimes tease those apart. I think what we often run into the case of in many labs is that the way we set up our studies inadvertently favors the younger people. And so the younger people are doing better not only because they haven't had maybe some of these physiological changes, but also because the social context is set up in a way that, that favors them. I'm curious, with the knowledge that you glean through your experiments, you mentioned you're in your 30s mm-hmm. now. I am. Is there something you've learned that you apply to your own life as you look <laughs> ahead to, to a time that maybe you will start losing your memory a little bit more frequently than than you do maybe. now? Yeah, one of um, one of my favorite things actually with training students as well is to watch people really get the opportunity to interact with older adults. I think there's not nearly enough intergenerational interactions that happen these days. We tend to be very age segregated as a society and when I have students, even if they're interested in joining my lab, which is an aging and cognition lab, so they obviously have at least some interests, a lot of them haven't ever really had extensive experience. And I find that they also have many stereotypes about what it means to get older. And then they start running our studies and interacting more and more with people. And they realize that 
the image that they had in their mind of older, I think really who they're picturing is somebody probably in their 90s who's quite sick. And they're they're thinking that that's going to be also the case for people in their 60s and 70s. And that's really just not the case. I was going to say, you kind of answered the question there. But in terms of those stereotypes, is that the main one that with age comes frailty and, and mental frailty, especially? Yeah, we because again, I'm a memory researcher, we do tend to focus probably more on the memory changes that happen because that's what my training's on. I think I one of my for my class on psychology of aging on the first day I asked my students to draw me a picture of an older adult, and I find the pictures. And how to be, many put a walking stick in? <laughs> I was going to say that's actually the the major one. That's how you can apparently tell that someone's older is that they have some type of um, assistive device for walking, either a cane or a. Um, wheelchair or crutch. Wheelchairs are harder to draw, it turns out. So most of the stick (laughs) figures just have canes. But almost every drawing has some type of physical impairment. I think that is what they think when they're thinking about older. It's more of these declines and not a very robust, happy person. The students that come to your class, uh, and as you say, they know it's an, Mm -hmm. an aging course they're studying and memory as well. What is their main motivation? <laughs> um, honestly, for most of them, it's probably because they need a requirement from this section of our <laughs> course catalog. Um, it's better than doing chemistry. Well, it's it's the one that maybe fit their schedule the best, to be honest. Um, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. Well, I'd say half and half. So uh, it's been interesting sort of watching the divisions of students. So a lot of them actually don't have much of an interest in in developmental psychology and aging in particular. And is that in itself perhaps one of the problems or issues that, that yeah. younger people, and as we've you've said a couple of times, you're in your 20s or even 30s, 30, yeah. and, and you don't think about getting old. It, it's not going to happen. I'm always going to be healthy. And maybe that explains why more people, again, it's not your field, but more people smoke. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or start still with everything we know about smoking. Everything we know. They'll they still, still start don't. in their 20s and teens. Yeah, it's. Um, I think there's sort of a, a big fear about about aging. Um, and one of my goals with my class is really to try and get people to come out of the class having a balanced picture because not everyone is going to be free of disease and free of disability. And it's unfair for us to paint a picture that is just a completely rosy picture um, of what everybody's experience is like, because that's just not not true for everyone. So to cover the range of things that could happen as we get older, while still having people not come out of the class completely depressed and scared and anxious about getting older. There's a lot of fears about aging. Um, One of the class exercises we've done before is an aging simulation day where we have, we have like glasses that simulate cataracts and glaucoma so that they can see different things like that and um, sort of these things that simulate arthritis for the hands. But I've also tried doing, there's um, apps for the smartphones that um, will do aging morphs on people's faces. So I can take a picture of you and then show you what you might look like as an older adult. And what's always been surprising to me for that class activity day is that there's always a, a subset of students who actually refuse to see themselves as an older adult. So they'll do the eye demo, they'll do the arthritis demo, that's fine. But actually seeing what their face might look like as an older adult is 
aversive enough for them that they actually opt out of, of choosing to see it. So they would rather turn a blind eye to the physical inevitabilities of aging. Yes, absolutely. And I think that when they do see themselves, there's usually not a positive. I've actually stopped doing the aging face app because it runs counter to my core goals of making people have more positive attitudes about things. Um, and I found that that particular part of the class activity people did not usually respond positively to it. So seeing themselves with wrinkles and gray hair, um, it didn't necessarily add to any of their knowledge. And I found that it was usually making them feel more negative. So I stopped doing it. Mm, that's interesting. When I would, I would have thought most people would accept it, <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, I mean, even with, um, as we get older, there's a big push for us to avoid looking old. So. Well, that's that's maybe a different issue. That's yes. the, that's wrinkle cream and yes, absolutely. surgeries <laughs> that you don't need. That's an entirely different issue. But it's modern day society. Which, yeah, now we are getting older as a society. So it's yeah, and, and we all are getting older. It's um, aging stereotypes. Actually, this is one of the things that interests me the most about them is that they're very different than any other group stereotypes. Everything else is something that's sort of with you for life. So there's stereotypes about women or about certain ethnic racial groups and that's something that you've got and it's something that you grew up with and you've always had um, for the most part there's obviously exceptions for people who um, change genders for example but aging is one where we go from having stereotypes about this out group to if all goes well and we don't die becoming part of that group ourselves so i think this is actually why they're so hard to counteract is that there's no reason to be defensive about them for most of our lives we we actually benefit from them as younger adults to think of ourselves as the good group and older adults as the frailer, weaker, less good group. And I don't have to be defensive about that because it's a stereotype about them and not about me. And then all of a sudden, as I get older, all of a sudden, it's a stereotype about me, not about them. <laughs> but because it's so deeply ingrained by that point, it's really hard to counteract. Are we, do you think, becoming more ageist as a society? There is some evidence, actually, that we are. There, This comes from things like looking at counts of ageist-type words that show up in newspaper articles and, and other media. And yeah, there's... Wh which words are they? Oh, I can't even remember. It's, <laughs> this, this is not my work, but like feeble and <laughs> Right. And... Interesting that studies like this are being done. Yeah, they are starting. And I think um, part of it is sort of the benefit of us getting older as a society and being able to live longer. We're not yet equipped as a society to really deal with some of all the ramifications for that. So um, retirement used to be something that when Social Security was instated was meant to support people for about five years of life. And now people are living so much longer. These social systems are going to have to adjust in some way just to keep up with the the realities of where we're at. Um, and it seems that as societies are aging faster, some of these negative stereotypes start developing more quicker as the demographics sort of tip away from having just a few revered older adults to maybe many, many older adults part of society. I, I wonder if you, do you ever bring in older people to talk, very old yeah. people to talk to your students? I, I haven't um, yet as a, like a full class demo, obviously in my lab and my students that I work with on more individual projects we do. The closest I've come with my students is I do have them do an assignment where they have to interview two people who are older than themselves. I'll be careful with my language here. <laughs> so um, what we have 
what I've decided to do for that class is to um, ask people to do two people, one of whom is at least 55 and one of whom is at least 65. And I tell them as old as possible for who you know, but not everyone due to family dynamics has people that they know that are that are that old. And what I found is that interviewing family members about some of the class materials is is usually a very rewarding experience, both for the development of understanding about aging issues, but also just personal relationships too. So they ask their interviewees about things like, have you noticed changes with your memory as you've gotten older? What have your emotional experiences become like as you've gotten older? Um, and then they also ask things like, what was um, biggest difference between your generation and my generation? So just a, a variety of different topic type questions that we would have covered in class. And then they write a paper about how the interviewees' experiences matched their own. And what's interesting about that is that it's a lot of times questions we've never actually asked our family members. And so it sort of gives them an opportunity to have some of these conversations and just hear about yeah, some of the people that they know's experiences with, with aging and hopefully maybe opening up to other broader conversations. Too. And as through your work, as you encounter older people who are perhaps having those memory lapse mm-hmm. issues that we've talked about, is there any advice you can give in terms of, I don't mean necessarily clinical advice, but just everyday advice to deal with it. Yeah. Um, I always try to be careful not to sure. slip into because I'm actually not a clinician. Broad issues. <laughs> Broad in terms issues of... that I often see. Um, a routine helps a lot. So I think a lot of people naturally come to do this anyways, but putting things by the door that you need to take with you or writing notes about what it is that you're needing to do. You mentioned faces and names earlier because that's a big one that a lot of people um, complain about at all ages, but especially as we get older. Honestly, the best thing to do for that is actually try to make sure you're consciously paying attention when people say their name, especially when we're meeting new people what we find is that there's people get anxious and they're thinking about themselves and how they're presenting and whether people are liking them. And they're actually not even really listening when other people are saying things. Maybe as an example to strike this home, if you've ever been in a big group setting and everyone's going around and saying their names, the people whose names you're least likely to know are actually the one or two that went right before you because you're tending to think about like what you're about to say about yourself. So you're not really listening to them anymore. So actually listening when people say their names, trying to repeat it in conversation, um, trying to think about some way to associate the name with the person, especially that, their physical features. That's my favorite. Features. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes. You don't need to tell anyone what your train of thought is. Yes. <laughs> but if you can latch on to something, it really does help. I often find, you know, because I'm at that age where you begin to forget names, as my friends will tell me. <laughs> but actually thinking of the name and then someone else you know with the same name. Oh, you do the same trick as I. So together. they tend to tell you, um, if you read the tip books, um, to try and do something about like their facial features, if they have an unusual facial feature to try and match it with something. I think it depends on the person's name. So my last name is Barber, which is an easier one to generate a visual image for. So you can imagine a barber standing behind me cutting my hair. Um, But a lot of people don't have easy names to turn into things. And so the one I also do is to think about someone I know that has that name and then imagine the person I'm meeting interacting with the person I already know that has that name and imagining whether they'd like each other, what similarities they might have with each other. And then I sort of remember having thought about that the next time I see the person. Mm, interesting. I often ask um, guests, uh, whether it's your field or not, it's mm-hmm. more of a, a personal question. Do you have personal aspirations in terms of your own longevity and, and how <laughs> you age and, and how you lead your life? This is such an interesting question. Um, so 
I, yeah, I want to stay, I think what we all want is to stay healthy and vibrant and not to spend many years sick and dependent. Um, and so to me, I'm, I don't think I'm as invested in the number of years as I am in the number of quality years. And if extending my life out another 10 means less of that, I'm less interested in that. I think there's also an interesting dynamic, too, of not wanting to outlive everybody else in your peer group. Um, we had this sort of debate amongst our research team when we were doing the study I told you about earlier when I told people to imagine they had six months left to live. We also had another group of people in that same study where we asked them to imagine that a medical breakthrough has come out where you could be guaranteed to live to 120 in good health. How would that change anything about what you're planning for yourself um, in your life? And what we found is that even within our research team, there was a little bit of mixed opinions about whether people would want to live to be 120. And especially within our participants, there was mixed opinions about whether that was a benefit, because it's maybe only a benefit if I could also guarantee everyone else gets the same medical breakthrough treatment and my partner is also living to be 120 in good health. I'm not alone living to 120 while everyone else passes. That's the aspect that's often ignored. You can say, well, okay, you could live to 120 and you're as healthy as you are today. Mm -hmm. So that initially is, is very appealing. But then you acknowledge the reality of the situation that your spouse, your partner has probably long since gone and maybe your children yes. and everyone around, you're left alone. So unless you have led this kind of life where you make friends from multiple generations, you're going to be actually quite lonely at yes, 120. Yes. Yes, which does not sound appealing, right? Which maybe is a good argument for, and assuming that I think perhaps we are slowly, I don't think it's going to happen quickly, but slowly uh, over the decades, we will live progressively longer. Perhaps it's a good reason for making friends across yeah, the generations. Yeah, different generations. And as you tip for your point earlier, that, that there isn't perhaps enough of young people interacting with older people. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah. What is you. next on the agenda for you in terms of your studies? Yeah, so we've been moving out of the realm of memory, which makes me a little nervous, but also excited to be learning and doing new things. I like to always be trying out new things. So one of the things we've been doing is thinking about the fact that many of the stereotypes about older adults are that they're frail and sick. I've been collaborating with another faculty here, Kate Hamill, who's in the kinesiology department, to look at how stereotypes and expectations about aging affect the way that people um, are walking and the way that they're um, mobility is changing as well. So trying to link some of the physical aspects to the cognitive aspects, um, that's where we're going next with. Is it the case that people think they are more frail than they really are? Or they do they behave like an old person? The stereotype yeah. that they have in their mind? What we, um, what we actually found in our first pilot study is that we actually found the opposite of what I normally see with my memory studies. So I will preface this by saying that the, it was, was a small study and it was all very healthy, gym-going 70-year-olds. So that is who these people were. We brought them into the lab. We told them the reason we brought you in today is because you're older. We're looking at how aging leads to frailty and falls. Now we want you to do some walking assessments for us. They actually walked faster faster. So it was much more of like this I'll show you <laughs> challenge type response. And I think it's because um, something like walking where it was just an easy above ground level walking is very easy. And it's something that's very much still within our control. We feel very efficacious about our abilities to do it. And I think that when the cases that I 
I'm feeling threatened or concerned about something, but I also still feel like I have control over it. Then I rise to the occasion and I actually do better than maybe I would have done otherwise. Whereas what I normally see in memory tests is that if I say very much the same instructions, we brought you in today because you're older, we're looking at age-related declines in memory, people do worse. And I think maybe they're just not feeling as self-sufficient about their memory abilities or about their ability to to do well at the task. That's interesting that they can, if it's a physical test, they can strive to do better or perhaps do what they are capable physically of doing and to show off a little bit to you. But if it's a mental agility test, they tend to slump back and not rise to the occasion. That is what we've seen so far, yeah. So most of the physical things that we've tested so far, people seem to be rising to the occasion and and performing better than they would have done otherwise if they think there's some threat about being assessed because of their age. Much research still to be done, I think. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Sarah Barbara, thank you very much indeed. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, likewise. And that is it for this episode. Before we go, a quick reminder that there are many ways you can listen to the Llama Podcast, as well as our website, llamapodcast.com. There's iTunes, TuneIn, and Google Play Music. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.